0: All right. So we will do session one covenant theology. That's what we're going to go get into now. So we'll be in Romans five. I've had you kind of reference there already. And we'll just be talking about the basic storyline of scripture. How does it all fit together? What is its backbone or structure? So there's debate uh, about scripture. What is the organizing principle behind it? So you have the old Testament with Israel, you have the new Testament with the church. And then the question becomes, well, how do these pieces fit together? And most importantly, what do we do with things like the commandments given to Israel? Or what do we do with things like the, the laws given to Moses? And how do, they, how do we relate to them in the New Testament? What does that have to do with us in the church? Uh, do we just get rid of the Old Testament? How do these things fit together? And there's a lot of systems that have been proposed. Some would see a large distinction between Israel and the church, uh, that the Old Testament and the covenant that God made with Israel is distinct from the covenant that God has with his church. And there's others who would say, no, 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 the whole storyline of scripture has this backbone through it, which we would call the covenant that God has with his people. And so that's covenant theology. That's what we're going to take a look at here. But there is a basis in the text of scripture to give us a a foundation for covenant theology. And that's in Romans chapter five. I'll just read a, a handful of verses out of there, starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned for indeed was for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass for many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. This is Paul in Romans giving us his treatise about how does salvation work? How does it all fit together? And the backbone of his argument, uh, after sufficiently proving that condemnation and corruption exist within the world, the very next thing he's going to turn to is this explanation for how, if humans are so corrupt, sinful, wicked, uh, how is there any hope for humanity? And Paul bases his organizing structure of Scripture around an interpretation between what we would call the two covenants. Uh, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And this is typified here by what we would call the covenant mediators, which means the person who represents everyone else in that covenant. And he says there's the first Adam, or the first man, and the second Adam, or Christ. So what happens with Adam, uh, as we well know the story of Genesis 1 through 3, uh, is the story of the fall. God creates Adam, puts him in a garden, gives him a commission, a command. And Adam, under that covenant that God has made with him, he falls. He sins, he falls short of what he was commissioned to do. And this would be where the fall happens, where sin enters into the world. And it is through Adam's law breaking, through his actions, that sin kind of enters in the world and corruption enters into humanity. Well, then the question becomes, well, what does that have to do with us? We're not Adam. How does Adam's sin affect the rest of us? Well, as Paul here argues in Romans 5, Through the one man, as the covenant representative of all mankind, sin enters into the world, and through sin, death. So it is through Adam's sin that you and I experience the effect of his sin uh, for all who are under Adam. Now, that's not bad news because God has actually found a way to amend the covenant which he has made with humanity. So the covenant given to Adam in Genesis is often referred to as the covenant of works, meaning God gives Adam works to complete. He has to be righteous, be obedient. And that's fair to give to Adam because Adam has no corruption within him. He has no propensity towards sin. So it would be a fair thing for God to give Adam this work to complete. It's called the covenant of works. Adam breaks the covenant, he falls short of it. And now the question is, well, what happens to covenant breakers? As Romans has already argued for the first three chapters, death is the result of breaking the covenant. The result of breaking the God's law is, is death, condemnation for all. But there's a second covenant, which is put out to God's people. We see this mediated through Abraham. Uh, we see it mediated through Moses. We see it mediated through David and through Noah. Uh, it's called the covenant of grace. And the idea behind the covenant of grace is it's God's amendment to the covenant of works, which basically mitigates the final condemnation of the covenant of works. So the, the serpent says to Adam and Eve in the garden, surely you will not die uh, because God said they will die if they eat of the tree. And we know that they actually do die. They are cut off from the land, cut off from God. They, they spiritually die at that point and death enters into the world through them. But God amends his covenant of works with Adam by first going down and proclaiming that through the woman's seed, there will be a champion over the serpent seed. He then goes to Abraham and he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He then goes through all of Abraham's lineage, preserving them into the Exodus and into deliverance by Moses, ultimately culminating with, with King David, who is the, the king, uh, the mediator of God's people, who God says, through you, David, and through, through one of your lineage, my glory will never depart from the throne of Israel. And this is God working out his salvation towards his people, always God moving to redeem his people at that point. That's called the covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace doesn't annul the covenant of works. As I mentioned it's God's amendment to it. And then the question becomes, well, how does God amend the covenant of works without violating justice? And there then comes the question uh, of, of Christ and his work. And this is what we would call the covenant of redemption, which the Godhead from eternity past decided in and amongst themselves to save his people. You can see allusions to this, for example, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, where it says before the foundations of the world, God's plan was hatched to save his people. The basic idea of the covenant of redemption is this, that the father, the son, and the spirit enter into a contract covenantal commitment with one another to save God's people from their own wickedness. Now, how does this work itself out? Well, the father is faithful to the people. The father sends the son to the people. Jesus does what Adam couldn't do. Jesus actually fulfills the covenant of works by being perfectly obedient unto the law, both actively and passively. And then Christ dies instead of Adam and all humans. And in doing so, he, he imputes his righteousness to people. And he uh, takes upon himself the, the wickedness of humanity. This is called the covenant of redemption. The Godhead has worked it out. And then, well, how does the Holy Spirit play into this? The Holy Spirit regenerates all those who the Father has sent the Son to save. And the Son dies for all those who the Father has sent him to save. And the Holy Spirit regenerates them and creates life within them. So the Godhead works together to save humanity, and essentially to work through the covenant of grace to redeem all of humanity from their own wickedness. And this takes us, let's say, back to Romans chapter 5, because what Paul's arguing here is not just that death enters the world through Adam. He also argues that righteousness and life enters the world through Christ. And I think understanding how Adam's sin affects us it's it's first helpful to understand how Christ's righteousness impacts us. So if you think about how we would understand Christ's righteousness coming to us, his righteousness comes to us by him freely gifting it to us, covering us by his own righteousness, by his own blood. And it's all his work, all his grace, which covers us, all his righteousness. And it is in him that we are covered and we stand redeemed by no works of our own, by no righteousness of our own. It is all Christ covering us. That's fair, and we like that because it's positive, it offers hope, but Christ's righteousness, his justification on our behalf, works in the same way that Adam's sin operated on our behalf. And we often don't like to talk about Adam's sin affecting us in the same way, but Adam's sin in the garden as the covenant mediator actually imputes to all humanity, all mankind. So you and I didn't have to sin Initially, when we were born or at some point in our lives, we're actually counted as guilty before God, even before we've sinned, because Adam is our mediator. Uh, the theological term that uh, people like to talk about with this is humans are born into this world, not only corrupted, but in some sense, dead on arrival. We are, we d- we are delivered into this world, into death, into condemnation, into wickedness. Now, that wickedness also works itself out in our actions and our conduct, but it is not as though we are born neutral, and then it is once we choose to sin that we are then condemned. We are actually born into sin. David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is David reflecting on this truth. He sins because he is a sinner at birth. So Adam's, righteousness, or, sorry, Adam's wickedness, his corruption, imputes to all of his offspring. But that's okay, because Christ's righteousness operates in the same way to impute his good works, his justification, his glory onto all his offspring, not dependent on how individually righteous or wicked those offspring are because that's called covenantal mediation. Now in the West, we struggle with this idea of scripture, the, that there can be a mediator on our behalf, but it's actually, I think the, the best and the only way to understand how Christ interacts with his offspring. If you don't think that Christ's justification or his righteousness can count for you because you've never done anything righteous, well, then there is no hope. This is how God has set it up to work. And and we get other examples of this in scripture. For example, the Israelites are delivered through Moses' mediation. They're delivered from Pharaoh. The Israelites don't go themselves before Pharaoh to plead their case or to save themselves. They are simply the beneficiaries of Moses' mediation on their behalf. He duels it out with Pharaoh, single-handedly by God's grace and power, defeats the Pharaoh's wise men and his magicians and essentially the entire Egyptian army. And the Israelites are essentially just beneficiaries of all that Moses does on their behalf. Similarly, Moses, when they they commit that wicked sin of forming a golden calf to worship and pretend that they're worshiping God, Moses, once again, mediates on their behalf. He goes before God and he mediates for them. And we see this with Abraham, where he mediates for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where he he mediates on their behalf to save Lot. And we know that this mediation also happens in the case of David. It's one of our favorite stories of King David, where he goes out as the representative for Israel and squares off against Goliath, the representative of the Philistines. And when Goliath falls, David's victory over Goliath counts as the victory for all of the Israelites over the Philistines. It's a representative sample, a representative mediation of victory. So it is with Christ. He squares off against the devil facing temptation in the wilderness. He goes to the cross in our in our place and he stands in our place as a representative for us. And then he imputes all that he has done in his saving work onto his children onto his offspring. This is the backbone of of scripture. It's how it's how it's organized. Now that organizing principle covenantal theology is not without uh, other questions that get kicked up. That's not really the purpose of, let's say, this initial talk about it. The the initial thing that I'd like you to at least be aware of is that this covenantal system is the organizing principle in Scripture. And to point you to the the connections between these two pieces, uh, even in the Old Testament, they have knowledge of a future mediation redemption that is going to be one for them on their behalf. It's mediated first through uh, Noah and then through Abraham, and then through Abraham's uh, seed, ultimately through into Moses and David. But the, the mediation after Israel is cut off from the land, after they've done all their wickedness post-David, post-sin, there's a couple of passages that allude to this renewal of the covenant that God will make with his, with his people. And so that's the last text I would like to turn to, which is Jeremiah chapter 31. So Jeremiah 31, it's really part of a section from Jeremiah 30 through 33 that tells us much about God's covenant renewal with his people. But in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, uh, some Bibles will actually have this sectioned off under the, the subtitle, the new covenant. And this is God telling the people who are cut off from the land about a future hope that is theirs to have. And he says it this way. uh, I'll start reading in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying to know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and has fixed the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas that it waves roars. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from beginning of the nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord God, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The point of that, poetic expression toward the end there, is to essentially, if for God to double down on the assurance that Israel has of his completing the covenant. He says uh, in verse 35, for who gives the sun for light by day and has fixed the order of the moon and the stars. And then right after that, verse 36, if this fixed order departs, then so does my covenant with Israel. Basically he's saying if, if the universe implodes upon itself, how it functions, then you'll know that I've abandoned Israel. So sure is God's covenant with his people. If the heavens could be measured, if the earth below could be measured, he's basically saying everything that is in this universe, the created world, that is so beyond your scope and gaze, if you could somehow measure those things, which we know even with the best technology today, we're, all, we're only learning how little we actually do know about creation. If you, could, if you could really measure all those things, hold them together, then I'll cast Israel aside. The point is he's, he's put his deposit on the people, and he is the one who is enacting their salvation to send Christ, to send their redemption. Now that's good news for us who stand downstream of Christ because what we see in the gospels and in the subsequent letters that are written about his work is that he is this intentional salvific mediator for the covenant. He goes out, he sends his disciples out. He sends you and I, his, his disciples, his modern day disciples out into the world to intentionally preach his gospel, proclaim his message of grace and good news, and to talk about how he saves people apart from their own righteousness or wickedness. And this is the central hope that we have because under his covenant mediation, we can say things like, it actually doesn't matter how good or evil you are. If you are found in Christ, his total righteousness counts for you and all of your wickedness has been imputed to him. And that's good news for people because Everyone has fallen short of God's standard. Everyone has fallen short of the righteousness they would have attained or should have attained. It's because we are all covenant breakers, but God is a covenant-keeping God. This is his testimony to Israel, his faithfulness throughout all the Old Testament, even into the New Testament where the constant uh, expression that you see between Jesus and his disciples and uh, Jesus to, for example, Paul when he is Saul, is that he is a God who pursues and is determined to save whoever he pleases. That's good news for us because when, when you're downcast and low about how you're doing in light of your righteousness, your own, your own sanctification, if you're having a bad day, the good news is your covenant mediator is, is still the same covenant mediator. Uh, in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, John encourages us to confess our sins before God. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... If anyone does sin, suppose you still sin, which we will do. Know this, that you have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. This is the good news that we have, that we have a covenant mediator in our stead. It's good news that Christ is standing in our place, interceding before us always. This is the argument of Hebrews. We have a greater mediator of a greater covenant who is a better mediator than all of those of old because he is tireless, restless, and determined to save his people. It's the organizing hermeneutic I think of scripture and it helps us understand how all these other parts will kind of piece together well.